Wednesday morning, and today we have a special episode, and we're going to have a few of these in the next coming weeks. Dr. John Patrick was at the CMDA conference. CMDA stands for Christian Medical and Dental Association, where I'm sure some of you guys know John from, and we're going to be playing one of those talks today. And today's talk is going to be about personal autonomy and the sexual revolution. Sitting down, I, I wanted to add a little bit to what Alan was saying about what comes out of the money you give to CMDA. Um, I like when I remember, and I don't always remember, uh, to thank you guys in several special ways. Perhaps the most amazing one to me is that some years ago, after a conference, uh, David called me and said, two of our members have put $6,000 in a fund for you at CMDA because they heard that you sometimes, they were ex-missionaries and they'd been talking to me and asked me, do you ever refuse invitations overseas? I said, I don't refuse, but I do say I don't have the money to travel at the moment. They don't have any money, of course. They didn't say anything, but shortly, David didn't tell me who it was, but I managed to work out who it must be and some years later confirmed it, that they put $6,000 in an account so that I would not refuse, particularly the developing world and behind what was then the Iron Curtain. Um, and they challenged CMDA members to match, uh, and they would match dollar for dollar for another 6000 We call it our widow's cruise of oil because I call Barbara when a trip is on and say, I've got this trip in mind. We've looked at the costs. We can afford this much. How's the fund? She just says, send me the bill. Now, some probably 20 years after it began, there was a conference where I got the list of the people who were going to be there before I got there. And we went through the list and there they were. Um, we hadn't seen them for a long while. And so when I got there, I said, before other people arrived, I said, can we have coffee? I want to talk to you. And uh, so uh, we sat down and I said, we worked out that you started our fund at CMDA head office for travel. Have a guess how much money we've taken out of that fund from your seed. And they guessed 30, 40,000? said, nowhere near. It's over 100. That is just absolutely stunning. That's American generosity. I don't know who any of the donors are. You may be one of them. I don't know. I just have to say thank you every now and again. Um, but don't lose that spirit, which, which de Tocqueville recognized as being something special in America, your, your generosity. You're always the first people to arrive in disasters. You have the power to get there. Uh, but don't let people undermine you. We're going to talk more about that in the next little while. But that is America at its best, isn't it? And uh, it's a story that's worth telling. Uh, they were, of course, unbelievably delighted. You cannot outgive God. It's not possible. So that's one. Uh, the other one is to thank so many of you who have given me hospitality over the years, and I sadly didn't keep a list. There's probably some piles of paper. If I ever retire, I might go through it and try and find the list. 
And every now and again, there was one guy who used to remind me of my wife's birthday every year. I think he must have passed on, but it is actually today. Uh, but when the conflict uh, appeared on the horizon, there wasn't any question about what was going to happen. Uh, if you want to send her a, a note saying, thank you for sending me, she'll send one back saying, I'm glad to have the relief. Uh, <laughs> but she gets little affirmation. So if you want to do that, please, an email would be much appreciated. JohnSallyPatrick at gmail.com. It's very simple. Um, so the other thing I want to say was about what Alan was talking about, the next layer down, like Connor there. Several of those guys have played a major part in my life. There's one talk, for instance, which I recorded uh, under the auspices of CMDA in, of all places, Madison, Wisconsin, which is one of the most woke liberal universities on earth. But this was some 20 years ago. And the assistant there was from IVCF, uh, John Dahl. And he contacted me. He was frightened about doing it, but he said, God is telling me I am to invite you to, and we are to have it in the middle of the day in the university, in the medical school. I discovered later he was so frightened, he had a prayer group going for a month before, and the whole time I was in Wisconsin, every time I was speaking, that prayer group wasn't there. They were praying for it. And the prayers were answered. Uh, first of all, the main lecture theatre was jam-packed full. After that lecture, later that afternoon, one of the student leaders sent an email around the whole of the faculty saying, I have never heard abortion spoken about like that. She was head of medical students for choice. And I do not know what to say. Can anyone help me? Uh, I was back again, uh, I think about a year later, this time it was packed again, but this time there were a lot of professors there as well. And after that one, the students went to the dean and demanded and got changes in their ethics curriculum to represent the beliefs of their patients. Genuine multiculturalism instead of liberal arrogance, which is what currently happens. The first time I ever gave a lecture on abortion in a medical school was a result of one of those juniors like Connor. Uh, my wife set up a website uh, because people were writing to her and saying, he was only 50 miles away. If I'd known, I would have come. And she said, I can't know where everybody lives, so I'm going to put up a website and I'm going to put your calendar on it. I said, don't waste your time, Sally. Nobody will go. How wrong I was. And just to rub it in, almost the first request I got as a result of that calendar was from Wayne State uh, in Detroit. I'm th I've never, I've got to ask John Bay, and I never till today thought he's, he's got something to do with this and he's never mentioned it. But the students called me and said, we see you're going to Ann Arbor. You have to go through either Windsor or Detroit on the way. Can you speak to us first or afterwards? I said, sure. What do you want me to talk about? And I said, well, uh, they said, abortion. I said, no, I don't do that. And they said, why not? And I said, I've no desire to be lynched in public. And uh, he said, they said, but we think we've heard you speak. We think you could do it. I said, flattery will get you nowhere. Uh, and then they did the Christian thing and said, we have been praying about it. <laughs> and there's no answer to that, is there? <laughs> 
So I said, I'll do it as long as the lecture theatre has an escape hatch by the lectern. And you have the car running, and when it's over, I'm out of there, and you drive me to Ann Arbor. They said, fine. I didn't need to do it. The lecture on that occasion ended in total silence. Nobody said a single word for about two minutes. And then there was a couple of very respectful questions. And that was it. Now, I've given versions of that lecture probably 80 times now, from the University of California to Harvard to Oxford to St. Petersburg to Sydney, you name it. I've never had a single aggressive question at the end of the lecture. Because the last line hits the feminists below the belt. It's always the same. Because what I do in that lecture is look Tom Sowell's second question. What are the consequences of abortion? They haven't thought about it. I call it the domino effect of Roe v. Wade. It's a package deal. You can't avoid the dominoes falling over. So the last line is always the same. I have laid out two worlds for you this afternoon, or when it is. Which world do you want to give to your children? And it's ours. Wonderful. And that's what God said. Uh, the other thing that helps in this, if you're being, if the Lord is on your case to do the kind of things I do, read John 16 many times till it sinks in. In fact, read the whole of the Upper Room Discourse, but particularly Acts 16, where Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. Raise your hand if you can tell me what three things the Holy Spirit is doing for me now. No, he is, but that isn't what he says there. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he, not me, he will convince the world of sin, justice. The sin, uh, I've got it wrong now, I've got, it's that time of day. Uh, but look it up again. It's, uh, it's, he will convince the world of sin, of judgment, and something else. And I've forgotten the third one. Somebody look it up. Righteousness, of course, it's because I'm so unrighteous, of course. Uh, sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I don't have to do that because they can argue with me. They can't argue with the Holy Spirit. And it's amazing, even dealing with clever uh, people. I once did a day's uh, sparring with Peter Singer uh, in Detroit. Um, and he never once attacked me in that way. He constantly defaulted to uh, animal rights. And we agreed at the beginning. I, I'd listened to him and watched him. And we had, I, I talked with him before. And I said, I know you call me a bloody pom, but that's OK, because he's Australian. Um, and I've listened to you. And I, would like, I know what you do. So can we agree to have no ad hominem attacks? And he said, the reason I agreed to do this with you is when I read your uh, CV and saw how much time you had spent in the developing world working on not just Christian things, but important problems. I have respect for that. So yes, there will be no ad hominem attacks. Uh, and there weren't. At the end of the day, there were three. We started in the Department of Philosophy and, uh, and did it an hour and a half. Then we had a break and we had an early lunch and then we did a session 
in uh, medical school, which went on for about, about, there was an hour's lecture, and then we did another hour and a half after that. And then in the evening, we did a public lecture. So by nine o'clock when we finished, I, I was worn out. I was very glad that one wonderful medical student who'd been to every session asked Peter Singer the last question. And by this time, he must have been tired too. But the question was brilliant. He said to Peter Singer, who was in favor of, he wanted to kill his mother, his father rather, when uh, she, he, she got sick and his sister wouldn't let him. But he, he, uh, this student said, Professor Singer, do you comfort people? And if so, how? Beautiful. And his guard was down by this stage. I've never heard him ever before be so personal. But he said, yeah, we're all atheists in my family. And of course, we want to comfort one another when we're in trouble. And we do our best. And then he said, when my father was dying, his father had been in a concentration camp. It's worth knowing that Peter Singer lost family in, in the Nazi concentration camps. It explains a lot. He said, when my father was dying, I, I said to him, Dad, you have lived a good life. You've done good things. It doesn't get any better than this. How empty. Now, about half of the audience were black. And after it finished, particularly the black people, were all gathered around me, and no one was gathered around Peter Singer. So it was a visible parable of the truth of John's gospel. Uh, nothing exciting happened in the whole day at one level. But that weekend, two assistant professors came to see me to talk because they were struggling with whether they could have a future as Christians in the university. We don't know what we're doing from God's point of view. Something that may seem trivial to us is not trivial in his sight. Um, the man who stopped the gladiatorial contests in Rome never knew that he'd done so. He gave his life to do it. He was a monk who was praying and God told him to go to Rome. And when he got there, the city was empty because they were all at the Colosseum. So he went. And when he saw what was happening, and there was a, a contest about to start between two men and one was going to be dead at the end of it. They'd come to watch one human kill another. And the emperor and his wife were there. This monk jumped into the arena and went and stood between the two gladiators. They looked up at the emperor and after a moment he turned his thumb down and they killed him. But then the whole place went silent and then the emperor left, and then everybody left, and that was the last gladiatorial contest. Obedience, recognized in heaven, of course. Uh, we don't have that kind of courage around, do we? We need it. The young, particularly young men, are looking for courageous things to do. And we've got a wimp of a society where men are being feminized. We want, as Peter Crave puts it, Women are much better than men at being women. And men are much better than women at being men. And they both need to play their proper role. And I wouldn't be here without my wife. She gets no praise, I get lots. Uh, but she's got her praise in heaven. 
we're in a story that is noble and courageous. So part of my preparation for this, I didn't know why, I just suddenly wanted to read the Lord of the Rings. So I've led, read the whole of the Lord of the Rings uh, in the last, you know, every now and again, pick it up. Um, because it's about us in many ways. It's so wonderful. It can be read in so many different ways. When the film was made, I, I asked one question and then said, I'm never going to watch that film, and I haven't. A, I don't trust Peter Jackson at Ninch, uh, who's the director. Um, he's a nasty man. Uh, I hope he gets redeemed, uh, but I don't want to see his work. Uh, John Robson, my good friend, who now teaches at Augustine College, having taken 20 years to come to Christ, we, we had lunch together on and off for 20 years, each arguing with the other. He was an atheist, I was a Christian, uh, both scholars, but he also a journalist, one of the best journalists in North America. Uh, and eventually he made the whole journey. Uh, it was a lovely moment. It was doctors again, because I persuaded him to come and speak to a, a doctor's conference because he'd made a, a video on uh, Magna Carta and that was appropriate for that year. And you guys loved him because he speaks very fast, but you keep up with him and uh, he's very funny but he's also challenging. And before that session, I asked him, where have you got to? Because we hadn't seen one another for a little while. And he said, still the same place. Uh, I knew he wasn't in the same place because he's, he's writing in the, the National Post was sh showing me that he wasn't in the same place. But I left it at that. But you like him so much, I asked him to come back the next year. And I said, any change? He said, yes, times are dark. It's time for me to come out, I believe. Uh, 20 years. I will never tell anyone become a Christian now. I will never say that because that's not in our bailiwick. I say, where have you got to? What do you know you need to do next? So do it. So for John, it started when he wrote a piece in the paper which said, I'm an atheist, but if I'm honest, I have to admit that from Augustine to C.S. Lewis, there are Christians along the way who were not stupid by any means whatsoever. So if I, as an atheist, am to be honest, I must read the scriptures. And I'm mortally afraid the monks will win the argument. <laughs> and in the end, they did. But that kind of salvation, that kind of conversion is not going to shift. And as evangelicals, we are guilty, aren't we, of uh, bullying our young people into having a testimony, right? I remember being bullied. I believe the story was true, but it wasn't personal to me. Uh, as a little boy, I was critical enough and I read enough, even by the time I was 11 or 12. I knew that a lot of people who knew Jesus didn't think twice about giving their life rather than denying him in even a simple action. So they wouldn't do that for a lie. And they wouldn't take their children with them into the arena rather than having them brought up as pagans and as slaves. But they did, in their thousands. And the battle between Rome and the church was won by the church without a single weapon being used except truth. That's our story, but we're not living it. And in medicine, you're going to have to live it. I've had a few correspondence now with people who've lost their job because uh, they wouldn't bend. But Hopefully you've learned some things this weekend about how to deal with the bending. Don't do it easily. Uh, make them struggle. 
and I teach uh, certainly students and residents, when you are asked to do something which you know to be wrong, don't say no. You don't need to. You say, I'm a student or I'm a resident. Before I obey you, because you're in charge, may I ask you a question? There's no way they can say no to that. So they have to say yes. And then you say, if you make me do this, you will destroy me as a person because you will destroy my moral integrity. Do you really want to do that? And I don't think there's anybody yet who would say yes and have it on the public record. And then you can say there are lots of people around who would fill that uh, request for abortion or that request for contraceptive if you're a Catholic. Uh, why don't you ask them? And that's what happens. If you say no, they've got you over a barrel. So don't. In the early church, they had to teach people, you don't run for, for martyrdom. Uh, there's not a prize attached to it like the Muslims say there is, especially when it's actually suicide. Uh, you are to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Uh, we do the dove bit, but we're very bad, very bad at the serpent bit. We need to train at it. So, we'll move on now into uh, the more modern period uh, where we see how the things that we're going to get to are ridiculous. And, I thought, while well, you're still fresh, I'll test you out a little bit. You all, well, I could test. How many of you had an ethics course when you were a medical student? Yeah, not that many. Uh, so the, the average age is about 101, isn't it? Something like that in the room, yeah. <laughs> uh, we need to get to the younger bit more. So I never had an ethics course either. Uh, but I, and I was not allowed. I, had, I was allowed to teach once in the in the University of Ottawa, and then I was banned because after my lecture, all the students followed me out into the amphitheatre and didn't go to the next one. Um, but that's enough in a way. I wasn't to waste my time in that way. But most of the young people who have had lecture theatres, their lectures on ethics. Tell me if I'm wrong, but your ethics teaching amounts to the Georgetown mantra, doesn't it? Autonomy, justice, uh, beneficence and non-maleficence, right? That's it. That's all there is. No discussion whatsoever. Now, the next question is, and this is one of the standard errors in all the woke world. You get this right and you've chopped half the wood down immediately. Does the phrase, the ordering of the goods, mean anything to you? Well, nobody's put up their hands, so I'm home free on this one. You are about to learn. Philosophers use goods from Aristotle onwards, not in terms of something you go and buy in the shop, but the things that make for the good life, the good life in the moral sense. How do you live a life that is worthy of a human being? And you need good things, the goods, the philosophical goods. But despite the dominance of choice in our society. They are not laid out as a smorgasbord and you choose what you want. Neither is it for you to decide their ordering, which they're not equal. Tolerance, for, for instance, is not even a virtue. It's a, necess a necessary adjustment to the fact that we're all sinners. You can't use tolerance as a verb in relation to something good easily. 
And when you do, it's a, the rather odd one. Uh, uh, he tolerated pain with great courage, but you're actually talking about courage, not tolerance. But if you say to your wife uh, or your spouse, uh, I will tolerate some love tonight, it doesn't really get it going on the right leg, does it? <laughs> it's the wrong verb. Tolerance is the oil to make the machinery of life work. It's, it's essential, but it, it's not a virtue. It's a necessary bit of maintenance, that's all. That's why the first thing I wrote was the myth of moral neutrality, uh, because I was so furious about the Faculty of Education having absolutely no insight into this. Now, you ought to be able to put them in order, which is the most fundamental, which one fits on top of that, which one on top of that, and which one is the one that's most dependent upon all the others. Now, let's take anybody under the age of 25. In your peer group, which of those four things, uh, autonomy, justice, beneficence, and non-maleficence, would your colleagues think is the most important? Tolerance. Tolerance would be what it is, so it would lead to choice, wouldn't it? It would lead to autonomy. But that's not the biblical way to do it. The Bible actually lays it out. Where does it lay it out? Here we go to our Lord's favorite book again, Deuteronomy. That's what it's about. The Deuteronomy is a commencement address. It's telling you how to live your life and you don't read it. And certainly don't think about it. The Though loving others is not even in Deuteronomy, it's in Leviticus. <laughs> loving God is still first. On the, the, well, it's first for the Jew as a faith statement, but it's not first in a legal sense. What comes, what's, the, what's the gift to the Jews in, the New, in, in Deuteronomy? It's the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Now you can rewrite the Ten Commandments as the Ten Divine Intolerances, thou shalt not. So in fact, it's what you shall not do that is the foundation for a good life. A good man is made complete not by what he does, but by what he will not do. Uh, when those intolerances, those negatives, are firmly built into a society, it is stable. And it's good. That's what Wendell Berry's Port William novels illustrate so beautifully in many ways. How many of you have not yet read any Wendell Berry? Well, there's a joy for you. Um, Wendell Berry is one of America's best authors. Uh, he would probably have had a lot of prizes if he wasn't overtly affirmative of Christianity. Not that he goes to church, he can't stand it anymore. He lives in the South and he says they've destroyed church. His wife is an organist in church. He goes for a walk on Sunday morning, uh, a bit like my wife, um, because church has become a social club where you don't upset anyone, whereas the real reason for going to church is to be upset by your pastor to lead you to repentance and a better life. And there's a hunger for that, and we're, we, it will come back, hopefully. So the basic one is what you will not do. And where I grew up, as I said, in a blue-collar environment. Nobody went to church. The, blue, the, the working class were lost to the church at the beginning of the 20th century, but they still got it in school, a chapter a day. And that was enough to keep the culture going. 
You can make your children good people because their upbringing will have that effect in most cases. You can't make them Christian, only God can do that. Uh, so focus on what you can do. Uh, Jordan Peterson says these kinds of things, but doesn't know where he gets them from. In one of his lovely ways of putting it is to say, don't let your child do anything that will make you like them less. That's a nice way to put it, isn't it? Don't let your child do anything that will make you like them less. And that's a good reason that you can say to them, if you do that, you're making me not like you so much. Do you want to do that? Um, so that's the foundation, what we will not do. Hippocrates, we will not do abortion, we will not even counsel suicide. Those negatives, they are so important, what you will not do. Now when you have understood all the negatives, you can get to the goods, the good things, because the moral universe that we inhabit is not like the physical universe. The physical universe is getting bigger. The moral universe is fixed, and its dimensions are truth to lies, honor to dishonor, justice to injustice. See how it works. When you've got to truth, you can't go any further in that direction. That's the end. When you get to lies, you can't go any further down. You've got there. So our, our moral universe for everybody is fixed. And all cultures know something quite like the Ten Commandments. Uh, not all of them, but up there, the loyalty and truth thing is one of the ways it breaks down. But we have to live within that world and navigate our way through it. And that's what cultural stories do. And why uneducated people who nevertheless had the Bible read to them once a day lived better lives than our anointed elite do at the moment who think they know what's good for everybody else. Because they've lost their way, they've lost their story. Uh, de Tocqueville saw this coming. The best, in my view, the best, uh, what's, what, what, what do I want to say? The best account of the problems and the blessings of being American, written in the 1700s. Isn't it amazing? A French nobleman, minor nobility, who'd lost many family in the revolution, came to America to see why your revolution was not a bloody mess, and the French was. Uh, in places, the French Revolution killed a third of the population. You didn't, because you had agreement at the beginning that you were a Judeo-Christian society. You didn't put it that way. But even Benjamin Franklin, what was the first thing he said in Philadelphia when the meeting started? It was Benjamin Franklin who said, we better pray. Because if we don't pray together, we will certainly swing together. He was realistic. So we inhabit cultural stories. They all have to answer a certain number of questions. The classic list is, where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? It's an overlapping list. How do I deal with death, suffering, and injustice? What can I know? Therefore, what ought I to do? That's it. That's knowledge and ethics. Uh, there are some things you ought to do. There are some things you can know. That's the way it works out. And the stories answer those questions. 
We don't even know who wrote those questions down for the first time. They got formulated by the Greeks and they come up in slightly different formulations all the way through because they cover the basis. We started this series with the first one. Where did I come from? Genesis. Why am I here? That's John 17 for us, isn't it? I am come that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That's it. Uh, that's why I'm here. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow morning. Uh, the stories that we inhabit give answers to that, but they're different. And that's everything that we need to know in a way. And we're not majoring in the majors. We start the argument halfway through. So the, the proper Christian ordering of the good, the base in your life that you teach to your children by the stories you put into their minds in the first seven years, because all the stories of the Bible are morally consequential, aren't they? No one gets away with anything. Uh, it may be 200 years before the hammer falls, but God will say, that started there. You may not suffer personally in this life, but you will be judged, but your consequences go on and on. If you break the law, the consequences go on for a few directions, if you, generations. If you love the law, they go on and on for a long while. Uh, but the world has to be morally consequential to be meaningful. Now, surely you've learned that in Minnesota now, haven't you? If there are things that are wrong that are not morally consequential, as in the George Floyd affair, uh, and you move as far as places like Seattle and Portland in their silly behavior and spreading. That if you're black, you can do no wrong because you're... It, it, that's such a patronizing statement. Oh, you're so poor and so backward that you can't be responsible for your behavior. Is that a compliment? It certainly is not. But so you get them in the right place with the right story and then a story comes along and heresy is always a good thing in a wrong place. It's good to be kind, it's good to be merciful. But where does it fit in the story? And how is it defined? So first of all, what you will not do. You can now get to the other side of the equation, can't you? You've got lies, you know what truth is. You've got injustice, you know what justice is. And so it goes on. So beneficence can be built on the basis of understanding what wrongdoing is, sin. Uh, and it, that's the way it comes about. Uh, get these things in the right place, you put them in the wrong order and the whole structure starts falling over. Now, once you have those two in place, justice is a possibility. I mean, uh, Deuteronomy is in part the development of a judicial system. God didn't bother with that, with Abraham and the rest. Uh, he let it go on and it, it turned out badly, uh, but the history was kept. The Jews keep their history and they do it honestly. No other culture in the world has a history in which their heroes then get, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, you guys and us uh, across the water, uh, we make heroes out of thugs. Robin Hood was a thug, basically a thief in the forest, uh, but we made him into a wonderful hero. Uh, many of your guys that you make into heroes were not very nice. One of your presidents in particular was not a nice man with respect to race at all. Uh, work it out. 
Good men are very rarely, uh, great men are very rarely good men, said Acton. And he's right. Uh, but we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be surprised by that. So justice, what does it require? Well, I've already touched on it already. Go to left, which I, who I hope you've got on your phone now and share it with any legal friends you come across. It is so good. And they have no lectures. They have no philosophy of justice. It's all about process and winning. That is not the way to run a justice system. When those are all in place, now you can have some autonomy. But for us, freedom is not the freedom to do what you wish. What is it? The freedom to do what you ought. That is true freedom. And most of your colleagues are not free to do what they ought. They are bound by their habits and their behavior. We all are to a degree, aren't we? Is there anybody here who's perfect yet? No. Although we've had trouble in the church, haven't we, with perfection doctrines. Uh, a little pragmatism would have been enough. Uh, the people preaching it, if I come across them, I say, could you walk for a week with all your thoughts on display in a bubble like a uh, cartoon character? Of course, the answer is no. You'd have to hide for the week till the bubble went away. Uh, none of us could bear the thought of everything we think uh, being public knowledge. We couldn't handle it. We're fallen creatures, but mercy is great. So that's the structure that you have to think about. So the truth and uh, loyalty is a very good example. Loyalty is a good thing. We need more of it in many respects. But it doesn't trump truth. If it does, you, you've got nepotism. The Muslims are very much uh, a loyalty top dog religion. And our politicians don't realize that. Uh, the Quran teaches the Muslim that you can lie to an infidel for the benefit of Islam. It's, that's good. Whereas the Jews are told, you may charge higher rates to them if they agree, but by and large, the Jewish law has an incredibly positive view of the duty of, of uh, looking after the stranger within your gates, but you don't yield on the moral basis of your society. We do it the other way around. We pretend we let them in, but we don't really. I think every time you hear a, uh, a politician talking uh, about these things uh, and they're in favor of uh, letting Texas and Arizona deal with all the problems, you, you don't need to say anything. Just say Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Just shout it out. Uh, if the next election isn't full of shouts of Mar Martha's Vineyard, it should be. I mean. They can't have you. You've not done anything wrong to shout the name of a place, have you? <laughs> they can't have you for perjury or any of those things, and, but everybody knows what you've said. Uh, we need to be a bit more subtle. So that's the first bit that I wanted you to get firmly in your head. So I hope that you will start talking to people about the ordering of the goods. Lewis said that heresy is usually a good thing in a wrong position. The devil is subtle. Remember the, the way he tempted Christ by abusing the scriptures, taking them out. He was disordering the goods. So it's one of the, the oldest methods of destroying the church. And when I first met David Stevens uh, and he gave a talk and I realized he was a very smart guy and I could enjoy teasing him and he, 
given he was also very competitive, he was not going to get cross with me. And I said, well, it was a good talk, except you had a very serious example of a logical error in there. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, uh, you didn't understand the whole concept of, uh, gosh, it's that time of day, the arguments where the middle is missing, the undistributed middle. Um, you hear either or arguments all the while. Whenever you hear either or, stop immediately and say, is that true? Most either or arguments are missing the big part. I used to do this to students in a biochemistry class, just for fun. Uh, I'd say a little bit about the non-existence of the nutritional data that has any real bearing on uh, athletic performance, uh, except that you can sell a supplement to any athlete any time because uh, they're suckers, but there's no evidence. And I said, as far as nutrition goes, um, it's really quite straightforward, you know. Um, if you're fit, you don't need exercise and you can eat what you like. If you're sick, you shouldn't take exercise. Is that right? Well, yeah, of course it's true. If you're fit you don't, at this moment, you don't need any exercise. If you're sick, there are plenty of, all, almost all the viral illnesses get worse if you exercise vigorously when you're incubating them. I mean, the only people who died of paralysis in the last polio uh, epidemic uh, included one international soccer player, the England fullback, Jeff Hall, because the muscles that you've really used are very vulnerable to the polio virus. So exercise makes viral illnesses worse in most cases. So my laziness is easily um, defended on that matter. But of course, it's an invalid argument. Because most of you are neither fit nor sick. You're just slightly lazy slobs like me. <laughs> uh, David didn't know what the undistributed middle was. And of course, I didn't tell him. But within 24 hours, he knew. And he never forgot it. And it's a standing joke between us. And he started looking at all the other logical fallacies that abound in our society. So when, you're, when you've taught the stories to your children, when they start asking how and why, that's when you teach them classical logic. So that they know when something is proved and when it is disproved. And they will be the bane of their teachers' lives. Uh, and it's wonderful to watch. One of my favorite Augustine College stories is of one of our students who stopped the first lecture in the pre-med program at McMaster University, which is a source of that evil called evidence-based medicine. Uh, and the guy, title, biopsychosocial medicine, and then click, there are no absolutes. Nathan's hand went up immediately. And uh, the guy looked up and said, young man, do you have a question? He said, yes, sir. Is that sentence internally consistent? Now, about 20% of the class laughed because they understood. The prof understood. And he was a good guy in one way. He said, oh, I guess I must have been asleep when I made that slide. I, I will correct it. How many of you still don't know what the problem is? Be honest. Only one honest person. Oh, no, perhaps two. The rest of you just don't have moral courage, right? Well, he's just made an absolute statement to prove that absolute statements don't exist. So.
you're stuck, you can't go anywhere. If there is no real truth, we can't talk to one another in any meaningful way. Uh, Aristotle knew that, and every philosopher actually knows that, although they don't teach the students that in a, a, as didactic a way as I would. That story gets even better. It's a very feminist school. So all the guys, to get through the first year, one of the things they have to do is make a joint presentation with a girl on a topic that has been okayed by some of the staff. The girls don't have to do that if they don't want to, but the, the guys have to. Uh, well, shortly after that event, and when they'd done a few small groups, a Muslim girl approached Nathan and said, would you do your presentation with me? And he said, yes, but you're a Muslim and I'm a Christian. He said, I know you're a Christian. I've been watching you. I very much appreciate your courtesy towards women. And he said, all right, would you, here's the paper I would like to do it on. And I think they'll say it's OK. And I'd introduced him to a wonderful little paper called The Bitter Pill. Have any of you read it? It's another one to put down. It's the first economic analysis of the effect of the contraceptive pill by a, a guy called Reichardt. It was republished in First Things, so you can, that's probably the easiest place to find it. And what he discovered was very interesting. What the, the net result of the pill has been to transfer money from women and children to men. That isn't exactly what the feminists wanted, but that's what's happened. And the students understand. In most university classes nowadays, there are some young women who are getting through school by servicing a sugar daddy. It's not prostitution in the usual way. It's just one guy who's got more money than sense, who buys them an apartment, clothes, pays their bills, and they just have to be available for sex when he wants it. Easy. And now that sex has been downgraded to merely a form of hedonism, that's OK. But of course, eventually they wake up and they realize they want a family. And they don't want this guy. But when they look around, all the good guys have already been taken. So they're left with what's left. That's why we have marriage contracts. They know it's going to fail, so they want to make sure they've got enough money. But there's never a contract that a clever lawyer can't break down in, to some degree. So the money ends up being a net transfer from women and children to men. Now, that's a very brave paper to use in a vulnerable state in a feminist dominated school. But when, of course, at the end of term, when this is happening, all the profs have to be listening to some of these. So you've not got a big audience. You just go to the professor who's been assigned you and you make your presentation. Well, when they got to their assigned room, who was it but the guy that Nathan had made a fool of on day one? And uh, he said to the Muslim girl, look who it is. We're not going to get a good mark. And she was a great girl. She said, I don't care. I really enjoyed doing this. And he gave them maximum marks. He was a good guy. He said, you deserve it for courage alone. But you also did it extremely well. That's God's world. There's always little bits of hope everywhere. That's one of the other things about the Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Gandalf says, we never do bad things to achieve good ends. And Frodo understood, 
And it was only Gandalf and Frodo who kept Gollum alive until he fulfilled his critical function in the whole story. Jackson, who didn't even understand that it was a moral story, uh, as all great stories are, I only had to w ask one question of uh, a friend who, John Robson actually, who had to review it, and he likes the story anyway. And I said, my favorite scene, I guess is not there. And he said, which one is it? I said, it's where Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli meet Aomer after the long chase across the plains where they don't catch up with the hobbits. And Aomer is supposed to take them back as prisoners to Edoras. And Aragorn says, we will not do that. We have more important things to do. And all the, all the people around, the soldiers with Aomer, expect him immediately to say, well, we'll take you anyway. And Aragorn said, if you try to take us, we will fight you. And then he says, good and evil are not one thing amongst dwarves and elves and another amongst men. And it is a man's part to discern them. Wonderful. And Aomer does. He goes against the crowd and says, not only will I not fight you, I will lend you two horses if you will promise to return them. And Aragorn says, we will return them to Edoras. And they did. It was a turning point in many respects. And it hinged on morality. And Jackson couldn't tolerate that. So he took it out. And now it's even worse. Uh, this last weekend at my grandson's wedding, none of the students there had read The Lord of the Rings, but they'd watched the Amazon film, which is a tragedy and a a wicked and mindless parody of the real thing. And that's where we're at. We're to be different. I mean, John Stott says that the, sub, the title of the, the Sermon on the Mount would be better. You must be different. That's what a disciple is, somebody who is different. Different because they're more like Christ. So how did this all get lost? We ended yesterday with Ockham leading to uh, via the French and Descartes to Bacon and the change in the meaning of the word fact, which before that point, moral facts everybody knew were unchangeable, physical facts are changeable. But Bacon said the only things that deserve to be called facts are things that can be measured. You know as a doctor that is untrue totally untrue. We all know that. And you need to use whatever examples are best in your life. But certainly you can say to the younger generation of women in university, when somebody dumps you, is that a real event? Of course, they all say yes. But there is no material existence in that event. And yet you, in one sense, if it was a real love, you will never forget it. Immaterial things are more constant and reliable than the material ones. Marriage and the, the vows you make together. Uh, Sally and I were talking the other day uh, about the fact that we, we could not divorce. Why? Because our grandchildren and children could not tolerate it. We've got, she's got good grounds for divorce many times. I mean, uh, I'm only alive because she didn't have something really sharp in her hand at the time, you know. Uh, she would have to go to prison, but 
I know that within a week or two she would be reorganizing the prison, basically, but... <laughs> that's the reality. We made a promise. We fear God. It is the beginning of wisdom. And it started to get lost steadily once the power of science and reductionism was so good that everybody else started trying to copy it. I call all the things like anthropology, psychology, sociology. They're physics envy courses. And they're a disaster. I would close every course in the university that had studies attached to it. Uh, almost invariably, they're driven by propaganda. Uh, there are things in there that, that need to be preserved, but not under that title and not under that way of thinking. But that's what happened. Now, in the 17th century, that was the golden age of science, and it was dominated by Christians. 95% of the major scientists of the 17th century were Christian, and half of them were devoutly Christian. So most of you couldn't tell me the biography of a great Christian scientist, right? So I teach my whole course on the history of science. I, I said, I will teach it, but it has to be medicine, science, and faith. And learn a few stories. Whatever area of science you're interested in, go looking. A nice book to start with, because it's well written and it's a lovely read, is uh, Hannam's uh, How the Middle Ages Made Science Possible. It's a beautiful book. Uh, and each chapter is about... Uh, a character who had a profound influence, and of course most of them are Christian, uh, from the Middle Ages. And you, you learn a lot of history in a very painless way, with a beautiful book you can leave on a coffee table. No pictures in it though. My favorite one, and there are many in this category, of a poor boy taken in by uh, the monks who made the most amazing clock that had ever been made at that point when he was made uh, abbot of uh, St. Albans. That not only did it tell you the time, it told you the time of high tide at London Bridge and almost everything else you wanted to know, all things that mattered. Uh, Grace, he, his father died, who had a blacksmith business, and he ended up in the, mon in, in, in the care of the monks and they educated him and he had that career. But here's just one story. And the product of this man, most of you have either on the table or in your pocket. Who is at the heart of the technology of your phone? You don't know. I'll tell you his biography in the next two minutes. And then raise your hand when you recognize who it is. Most of you will not raise your hand which is very sad, but you will forevermore afterwards. So this is a, a learning moment. Having a blacksmith for a father seems to be quite a good idea. There are a lot of people who did well after that start. He was one such. Born in London, with little education. What education he had was in the church to which his family was devoted. He was there several times a week. There he learned to think, to read, to be a person. By the time he was early teens, 11, 12, 13, that sort of age, he was already working as an apprentice bookbinder. 
And fortunately for him, uh, the owner of the bookbinding business was a good man, and he realized that this boy was smart. So he said to him, look, you can read the books you're binding in the intervals, you know, when you take a rest. And he was binding a lot of science, became fascinated. So he started going to the free public lectures in London at the Royal Institute and the Royal Society. To this day, there is a Christmas lecture for children which bears this man's name. Um, anyway, uh, in a few years, he realized he did not want to spend his life binding books. What he really wanted to be, in our terms, was the lab tech who set up the experiments to go with the lectures in the Royal Institute. One, one person's got there. Two, yeah, three. Oh, good. You can keep your hands down. We'll take another score at the end. Um, that's good. That's a high percentage already, which is a frightening statement, isn't it? Um, so he bound his much treasured notes beautifully, which he could do, and sent them to the president of the Royal Institute, who, by the mercy of God, turned out to be a Christian. Another name you should know. And uh, he didn't throw them in the trash, as many busy, busy people would do, as I might have done. Uh, I guess the binding probably got over that hump. Then he saw some good notes, and good notes are pretty rare. I can't even understand my own notes sometimes, you know. Uh, and you know, if you've ever taken your notes off the shelf a year later, you can't make it or tail of them, you know, they're, they're rubbish. Uh, they should be kept as a permanent humility that you can show to your children. This is what I wrote when I was supposed to be clever at university. Can you understand it? I can't. Yeah. Uh, but his were good. But what was even better was his idea about what should be done next. He got, with a few hiccups, he got the job. And very shortly, he became indispensable. All the great scientists of the world go through London, and his boss would meet them, and he would introduce them. So around the scientific world, they knew there was a very smart young man in London who'd never been to high school, let alone university. In due course, he became president of the Royal Institute. He was known to stop its committee meetings with the best excuse I've ever heard of. I've got to go to my prayer meeting. And it was, now raise your hand, How, have we got above three? Oh, we haven't got to double figures, just about double figures. Well, it's Michael Faraday. He's so important, he even has a, an international unit named after him. And when he first came up with the conception of a field in electricity and magnetism, everybody laughed. It was a standing joke in the university circles uh, in London. Mr. Faraday's Fields, ha, ha, ha. Wouldn't he be amazed today to see what his work has done? He didn't have any mathematical base because he'd had no education. So he did it all by incredible experiments. And he simply said, you do an experiment, you write it up, you publish it, and you move on. Honestly. It's an incredible sequence from Newton to Boyle to Faraday to Clark Maxwell, to Eddington, and you could go, every one of them is a committed Christian. Two of them have lectures every year in London based with that name. Boyle funded a, a lecture series, and there's the Faraday Lecture at the Royal Institute. Uh, there ought to be a Clark Maxwell one. Clark Maxwell founded the 
single laboratory with the most Nobel Prizes in the world uh, in, in Cambridge. DNA to you know, across the board. Uh, and over the front entrance, he put a quotation from the Psalms. I think somewhere at, uh, uh, around 111, great are the works of the Lord and greatly sought after by those that fear him. And that sort of, I don't have the verse exactly right. And when they rebuilt it, all the people in that building said, the new building must take that with it. They were unbelievers, but they understood that Clark Maxwell was worthy of being remembered in that way because he was a deeply committed Christian, died far too young, as is so often the case from our point of view, but obviously not from God's. So you could stop now and go home and work on that bit, but that's only a setup in a way. Um, there's always that strand, there's always hope. I mean, at the moment, the, the area, my area of biochemistry and molecular biology, the Christians are making hay in the most amazing way. Uh, it's over for them, for the, for the uh, neo-Darwinianism is going nowhere. It, it, it's true, uh, evolution occurs. Anybody who says it isn't is just ignorant. Uh, and the easiest example to show what I'm talking about is Hawaii. When we first went to Hawaii, there were no fruit flies there. Now there are fruit flies in Hawaii who can't breed with the ones in Florida. That's the definition of a species. So it's evolved. So evolution at that level is part of nature. But think about it for a moment. If your car adjusted to climate change without you doing anything, would that make it a better or a worse car? Well, when God makes something, he builds into it flexibility that he knows is going to be needed. If you want some sort of prima facie evidence that climate change is something that God knew about, there's plenty of evidence for it of things that are in animals that in most cases never get used, but when they're needed, they turn up. They were there in the first place. They were there in the blueprint. Uh, but DNA and the move from inanimate to animate are impossible by chance. It's amazing. Um, I need, I'm going on too long already. Um, how many of you have heard me talk about Cuba and DNA? Oh my goodness, you haven't. Oh, well, I have to, oh, a few. So you don't mind me doing it again? Not at all. Thank you. I knew you'd say that. But this was a gift. This is another example of the sort of thing that's happened. Uh, I've taught in Cuba half a dozen times, uh, largely medicine, uh, because there was a, the Canadians never broke off relations with Cuba. And so the Christian Medical Dental Association of the US, of Canada, had a relationship with Christian doctors in Cuba. And they asked us to, whether we could put on a conference to keep them up to date medically. Um, that still runs. Uh, Castro himself said yes. On one occasion, Castro met a load of Bibles we sent to make sure they weren't destroyed by overzealous uh, communists. But uh, the first time I went and uh, I got to the conference and, and looked to see what they were asking me to do. And I looked over the, the agenda and I said, but there's, there's nothing specifically Christian here. And the Cuban said, could you, could you give a lecture that would fit in here that would be Christian? I said, of course I can. So I did, and gossip being what it was, uh, 
very shortly, the pastors around the town said, would you come and talk to us as well? So every time I went after that, I had two prongs to my activities. I did standard teaching uh, in medicine and science and the side shoot, the more important one, of faith. Anyway, uh, I don't know, I can't remember which year it was, but after a lecture on some obscure as aspect of acid-base metabolism, I think, I can't remember for certain, a gentleman came up to me and he turned out to be the head of the Department of Marxism and Leninism in the local university, which is where we get to next in this story. And uh, I looked at him, I said, this is not a doctor. And I said, um, uh, who are you and why are you here? And he said, well, I'm the head of Marxism and Leninism at the local university and I'm here to see you. I said, why? And he said, well, the students tell me that you say that Russia has collapsed, not because of American economic power and Reagan. He didn't bring them down. They rotted from the inside with moral decay. And he said, I agree with you. And he said, when I saw that Russia was going to collapse, I knew that Cuba was going to suffer because they bought all that sugar. And the collapse of Russia was much more devastating for Cuba in many ways than many of the, the people behind the Iron Curtain. So he said, I stopped teaching Marxism and Leninism and I tried to teach multicultural ethics, thinking that would improve things. But he said, the students go to sleep, but they tell me they don't go to sleep when you talk about ethics. So I've come to ask you to debate me tomorrow morning in front of the faculty on the nature of human ethics. I, I will take the Marxist line that it's a human fabrication. I know that you don't think that. I don't mind losing, but I want to know the argument. What a wonderful man. I had one night to prepare. Uh, I said my prayers. I had several starts that would work because debate's a bit like chess. If you get the opening wrong, you've lost. Um, and I had several that would work, but I knew sort of dimly in my mind that there was a better way to do it, but I didn't know where it was. And the good Lord reminds me every now and again who's in charge. And this was one of those moments. I got up from my seat to walk to the lectern and he wiped my mind clean. And he put something else in its place, which was brilliant. And so I said to my Canadian Colombian translator, because you can't trust communist translators, I said, Hugo, what I told you is not what's going to happen. I said, right on the board, this message assembled itself. So he did, in Spanish, of course. And then I asked the graduate audience and the professors, if you'd walked into the lecture room and found this on the board, what would you make of it? And the Spanish culture is much more engaging than you guys. You know, they, 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 they join in much more easily. And they said, well, it's grammatical to a degree. It's a sentence to a degree, but it is nonsense because the whole point of a message is that one person is trying to communicate with another. Quite right. Then I turned around and I crossed out message and I put DNA in its place. And I said, but you do believe this sentence because Darwin told you that DNA assembled itself. But don't you see, it's exactly the same sentence because DNA is not you and me. It's not even a protein. It's a coded message. So it's a bit worse. This coded message assembled itself. And now if you can imagine that, you're really in a different, a different, different world, different cosmos. The whole audience burst into applause. I'd won. 
And then I went on to explain why it was even more exciting. And since that time, it's got even better uh, as an argument for the absolute impossibility of doing this by chance. Uh, you all know that God, being God, only needs a four-letter alphabet, and he only bothers to write in three-letter words. That's how, he wo that's how DNA works. And he can write out a protein, about 300 letters, letters in the right order will no, sorry, 900 letters in the right order, but we'll give you 300 amino acids, that'll make a protein. And that's pretty amazing. So you have an individual ID number about 3.5 billion letters long. Uh, good job we don't have to write it out for the board of passing. Uh, but then in, a few years later, it got even better. God doesn't waste paper, so to speak. So he writes the same, two different messages on the same piece of paper out by one letter in these three letter words. So we discovered the code on saying, so you're going in triplets, one, two, three, do it in numbers, it's easier than letters. One, two, three, and that three will say, start here, four, five, six, and then you go four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and in triplets till you've got about 300 amino acids, and then it says stop, and you've got a, you've got a protein that works. And about more than 20 years ago, we first discovered that some bits of DNA, we'd got scissors that would cut them up and we could put them in a bacteria and get them to make the protein. But every now and again, first in obscure bits of DNA in, uh, oh, I'm getting a real name block, in, not in the nucleus, but in the mitochondria, you did your standard experiment and you got two proteins, but you only had enough letters for one. Nobody could explain it. The guy who did was a Christian and he insists, as I would have done, I didn't explain it, God showed me. He was sitting in his lab in, uh, in Seattle and he'd got one of these problems of two proteins, both of which were functional from a strip of DNA which wasn't long enough. Uh, so sometime after midnight, he suddenly saw that there was a codon that didn't think, it, a lot was called junk DNA, not much is now, but there are messages before the beginning of DNA that's going to be active that can say, one can say start at number four, another one will say start at number five. So you can have a protein that's going four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and so on, but you can have another one that's going six, seven, eight, and in the same sequence. And both produce functional proteins. When this was shown to Bill Gates, he shook his head in disbelief. He said, we couldn't begin to know how to program that. We couldn't. This guy said, he sat in, the guy who discovered it, he said, when I saw it, I sat in my lab for the next two hours enjoying the fact that only I and God knew this. <laughs> <laughs> but it is so stunning. The probability of that, John Lennox says, is roughly one for all the molecules in the cosmos. There are so many zeros after the decimal point that you won't be alive long enough to get to them. And the trip now, what James Tour has added to it, and you can find Tour and the director of the Discovery Institute, what's his name now? Somebody tell me. You must know that. Anyway, Steve Myers, thank you. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it's there. Uh, it reminds me of Augustine every time. I know what memory is till somebody asks me. Um, but they've done a, a, a joint thing. You can find it on YouTube. Just put. Uh, Steve Myers and James Tour and Dallas 
a couple of years ago, they did an apologetics conference. And James Tour stands up and says, this is a Christian apologetics conference, but I am not going to mention God. I'm going to let him speak for himself. And he teaches you the chemistry involved in making a single protein in the lab and how incredibly difficult it is to do. And you can't possibly do it without many of the things that you have to make in the first place. It is an utterly impossible leap from inorganic to organic. Chemically, it's not possible. It's, a, it's, a, it's probably of a worse order than the problem of DNA. So put the two together, it's game over. There's a mind behind all this, and what a mind it is. Uh, you can enjoy science when you start realizing just how stunning it is. Probably, have any of you read any Michael Denton? Ah, oh. what, what, when did you, one. <laughs> but he, he's written quite a lot of really good books now. He's also connected to the, the Discovery Institute. But Nature's Destiny is a lovely book uh, for you to read because you will want to read bits of it to your children and your grandchildren. Things like, uh, 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 the eye of the, uh, which one is it now? A crab or the lobster, the eye of the lobster, yep. God was just having fun putting it in there for us to puzzle over because the larval form of the lobster and the adult form has an utterly different eye. And the larval form is a reflecting eye. Literally, it's made of square cylinder mirrors, and they all focus. And of course, a reflecting eye gathers more light than uh, a refracting eye. So you can make some sort of understanding of why it might have a benefit and write a Darwinian just so story. But the problem of actually thinking the details of how it might happen are out of this world. And it's such a beautiful example, the eye of the lobster. Uh, God does this sort of thing. Why did he only bother doing it there, you know? Just, but he does so many things like that. When I was about 15, I had a very good biology master who knew how to get to boys. And one of our assignments, one of our homeworks, was to write an essay designing a new animal. You know, fun. And of course, I was 15, and in England, uh, well, we didn't have the money for a car anyway, but you couldn't drive at that age. All I had was a bicycle, and I enjoyed it. Uh, it was a very good one. I'd worked very hard to get it. Uh, but I could only, you know, could do about 20 miles an hour and uh, on average over about a 25 mile distance. But that was it. But why hadn't God made a wheel? And I asked Christian, I couldn't. Got no wheels in nature. Is that really true? And of course, we didn't know then. But God put one wheel in nature just for us, I think. He said, they're going to think they made wheels and it, that I hadn't thought about it. I'm not going to let them get away with that. So he hides the wheel in the tail of a bacterium. Uh, it's and it's an amazing construction. I mean, it, it's uh, got about 20 uh, unique genes involved with it pretty well. It, it rotates very fast, something like 100,000 RPM. It can stop in half a turn and go backwards. It has no temperature gradient. It has a chemical engine. And it's an outboard motor. It drives the flagellum. Uh, Michael B. he wrote a whole book about it, pretty well about that. 
but it, it's just a stunning piece of it. There's one engineer here. Is he still here today or has he left in disgust? <laughs> oh, he's still here. <laughs> There's a bit of engineering to go and look at. You'll enjoy looking at that. Uh, just, and nature is full of that. You, a naturalist must at some point be overwhelmed by what they're looking at, but many of them are not. But real study of nature does lead to worship, and that's good. So, but the world went the reductive way, and the non-scientific part of the world went even further. I mean, Cuban science was called scientific socialism grabbing the name uh, with no just cause. But after the uh, 1917 revolution, uh, when, when uh, Lenin died and Stalin took over even worse, the communism took place. Now, communism has never won an election, never taken power by election. It's always been a military coup, and then they have fake democracy afterwards. And scholars noticed this. And they thought, of course, that it's just that the, the, the proletariat are too simple and uneducated to be able to follow us. And ends justify means for them, big time. Dostoevsky, uh, let me read you the, so it will remind me of, yes, I did bring it. it has, this does two things for you. How many of you, you go to the Unheard website ever? It's another one that's worth going to. Unheard. It's from Britain. And this came from them. It's Jacob Howland from Texas. And he's writing about how ideology has poisoned the West. Ideology is a new word. It came in the French Revolution. It didn't exist before. Uh, and of course, it was a uh, materialist who produced it. Uh, here's what he writes. Tracy conceived of ideology as a social science of ideas that would inform the construction of a rational, progressive society governed by an enlightenment, enlightened elite whose te technical expertise would justify their claim to rule. The illiberalism of this progressive technocratic ideal became fully apparent uh, in the West only with the onset of COVID. That's, that's a bit of a damning sentence. It is, I think, a bit overstated. It is now widely understood that the subordination of public life to ostensibly scientific guidance and the effective transfer of sovereignty from the body of citizens to an unelected overclass is fundamentally inconsistent with liberty and individual dignity. But it's also the basis of Marxism. So what they did uh, is that they realized they couldn't win the election the way they were going. And they realized in a little while that Marx was wrong the economy was not the way to go. So they started the long march through the universities. They would work through the intellectual part of the state and take it over. Now, you know the figures now. 95% of the professors in the arts faculty are Marxist in orientation. Their ideas come from that source. They often don't know where they came from because they're so ignorant nowadays. Uh, but they did. And it the cost in human lives has been absolutely incredible. A hundred million is a minimal estimate of the people who have been slaughtered in the name of communism. The Ukrainians had, in the Great Famine, which was engineered by Stalin, uh, 
And Stalin said, you know, collateral damage. We've got to get rid of the kulaks because the moment they gave them some land of their own, they became profitable. So they took it away from them. Don't think that that can't come your way. I mean, the reason Obama wanted to get rid of Christian positions is very clearly because we, we should constitute a real opposition. It hasn't happened yet. So what happens in the communist story, once it became apparent that capitalism is the only system that really works, because what would be required in communism is just laughable. And Russia provides lots of amusing examples of it. If you're going to have a centrally controlled government that sets the price of everything, how many articles are produced per day in the world that need to be controlled by some central bureaucrat? It's an impossible task. And of course, it goes wrong. Uh, my favorite illustration of how wrong it can go is they sent out in Russia a, an order for shoes, how many shoes were to be made. And various shoe factories were given their numbers, and one owner of a shoe factory said, well, they haven't said that I have to make a pair of shoes. It was much easier and quicker to make all left or all right, and he'd fulfilled his contract. Uh, the things we don't think about, you know, uh, the market is much more sensible. People only buy what they want, uh, and that feeds back into the system. It's not surprising the man who thought that out was a Christian, uh, a really committed Christian, uh, and he's the father of capitalism. Yeah, it has all its defects, but there are human defects that are around anyway. And it's certainly better than the other system. So, I mean, China is now basically a capitalist medieval set of barons, isn't it? Uh, with a small group at the top making so much money, they don't know what to do with it. And still, lots of people living in the country on minimal incomes. These ideas flow through and they can't be stopped uh, easily unless people really start thinking. Transgenderism comes out of this direct route combining with Freud and Jung, uh, and a nice description of that is actually also to be found in Unheard just recently, uh, why the Tavistock Clinic had to close. Britain is ahead of the US, but Christians who oppose to these things but don't bother to read will probably be trying to reinvent the whole process. But when I met Sally, she was working next door to the Tavistock Clinic, which all the social workers, her included, were uh, sucked into being very proud of what the TAVI was doing. And that's where the first gen uh, well, the gender reassignment program began. And the guy who was uh, the founder was deeply influenced by Freud and by Jung, and they pushed the doctors out very quickly, except tame endocrinologists who would give the injections when they needed them and the physics MB programs took over. And it's only in the last year that uh, somebody complained and then the government set up a committee uh, to look at it properly, uh, the Care Quality Commission, and they rated the service as inadequate uh, and they said it should be closed. And the Tavistock Clinic, the most famous transgender clinic in the world has been closed by the British government. The British Supreme Court has also decreed that no child can give consent to physical surgery uh, and gender-altering drugs 
before puberty. Uh, we're on the way. Uh, but do you think that's been reported widely in the press? Should be. Uh, unheard is good, it picks up those things. Those names come up time and time again. Uh, you don't really need to know about them, but you need to know uh, that that process exists. And you, we need some people in our environment who actually work on presenting this stuff in a way that ordinary people can understand. The man who certainly made the most impact for me is, is, Dave, is uh, Scruton, Roger Scruton, who sadly died a, a year or so ago. How many of you love art? A few, yeah. Well, Scruton on art, there is an absolutely stunningly beautiful video that he made with BBC Scotland on the imports of beauty. Uh, if you can't find it, send an email to us. Sally keeps the exact reference on because the BBC is not proud of it. But they don't want to get rid of it because it's brilliant. Uh, I mean, the ma Roger Scruton... Uh, he was cancelled long before anyone else was, uh, way back uh, when I was still at university, because he was known as a person who'd made the decision that the right-hand end of the spectrum was wiser than the left. Uh, Oxford, Cambridge, London professors took his career away. Uh, he couldn't get a job. But he didn't give in. He went behind the Iron Curtain and started helping with underground university, particularly in Poland and in Czechoslovakia, where they think of him almost as a god. And he's now riding higher in the West, as people have now, even Marxists have to admit that it's been pretty horrible many of times. But of course, it's never been proper Marxism yet. And what we will do will be proper Marxism, which always has nothing, always works in categories. Identity politics, straight out of that. And identity politics, is being forced on medicine to a degree, isn't it, more and more. Uh, people are being put into people groups because rather than being treated as what they are, real people. Uh, the nicest story I know that you can use to illustrate that, I use many times with uh, medical students, is a Wendell Berry story. There's a, one of his novels is called Fidelity. And there's one chapter in the middle which has the title Fidelity. And it's about a more intensive than careful unit uh, in... Uh, in Kentucky, and how a rural community realizes this is not the way to die, and they take the action into their own hands. And I used to also teach a humanities program in the medical school because I foolishly said to the dean that his ethics course wouldn't make people ethical. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, uh, I happen to know that in this year there's no one has read any Dostoevsky. Um, he's much more likely to get to their souls than these boring ethics lectures are. And he said, then you better start teaching them. So I had a medical humanities program on my hands. And I used that story as the first time. We rapidly realized that we had to meet in the evening over pizza uh, uh, because they would, uh, we would read a story, or they'd read it beforehand, and then they started questioning, and the rest followed. But in, in that particular story, uh, it's funny, it's clever. And there's only one phrase you have to interpret to uh, the modern youth, because Wendell Berry says that when the country people came into town to the ICU, they came where their offerings could not be accepted. Now, 
what Wendell Berry is saying is that the intensivist is being asked to be the high priest who takes the offering of solidarity or whatever you want to call it from the country people and promises to deliver it to the patient. He doesn't even know how to do that. So they leave utterly disappointed. And I won't spoil the story for you what happens. It, it's comedic and deeply thoughtful. And all I have to say to the students, well, what kind of doctor are you going to be? And they say, not one of them. Uh, they're on the road. They've made a truthful statement, and they, they'll work out what it means over time. Remember the younger ones uh, when you're in your training. When you're working with people for a long while, don't try and convert them. They're watching you. And there are so many times in my career that incompetent evangelical physicians, I say, for God's sake, shut up. Uh, if your medicine is bad, you better not say anything about how important Christianity is. In your workplace, you shine by what you are. People look at you. Christ, in the long run, is looking on your heart too. So don't do it. One of those students was sent to me later, by, sent her boyfriend to me. She said, he needs to talk to you. And he came to talk to me and he was very upset about the state of medicine. And we talked for a long while, all the usual sort of stuff. And I went to the door with him and I said, well, Todd, go in peace and the Lord go with you. And he said, I walked down the path Nobody had ever said anything like that before me, and I realized you actually meant it. <laughs> and then about six weeks later, he became a Christian. I, I had no role in that except that one sentence. It's the sort of thing I would say to anyone leaving our house. And he comes to the summer conference. Some of you met him. That's Todd, if you, Todd came, and I mean, he's had a wonderful career. He talks too much like me, uh, but he's efficient as well. So in that sense, he's, he's better. He's ended up in the Catholic Church. But I'm not the least bit bothered about that. Uh, we need more evangelists in the Catholic Church and we need more Catholic scholars in the evangelical church. We, we ought to arrange an exchange program. <laughs> so the world that developed out of this, the reductionistic world, this is going to go on into postmodernism and all the rest, the denial of truth. It, that cannot last. And remember that you are told to judge, and you are to judge by actions. Not what they say, not look what people do and make your judgments on that basis. Uh, you've got to judge, and you've got to say so. And that will work. So, in this session, which should have finished already, die, come, I, don't, I don't call it anything other than D-I-E, because that makes die. Diversity, inclusion, equity. It's much better. And having a good title in Britain is fun. They actually put back euthanasia on one occasion because a good Catholic guy joined the evangelicals to help them prepare their case. And you see, you need the right name, he said. Uh, and he pointed out the handicapped people have got it right. They've in Britain called themselves the Not Dead Yet Society. <laughs> Some of you know where that came from. But you can imagine what that was like in the House of Lords when the cry went out, call the not yet dead society. <laughs> it, we, it's truthful. Uh, we need good acronyms and good ideas. So turn Ides into die. 
there's nothing in the ordering anyway because the words have no content that's real and it's your job to take it apart. They only want some diversities, uh, not others. They don't want to, to, to go to Broadway and say there are too many homosexuals, i.e. about 90% of the actors on Broadway, I'm told, are homosexual. That's not diverse, is it? But, of course, you want an actor who can act and you want a doctor who can do his job. Competence comes above all of those things and trumps them all. Uh, when I met Jordan Peterson for the first time, uh, the question period, I didn't know I'd said this, then somebody pointed it out to me because I never listened to the question period when it was, I thought it was half an hour and it goes over an hour. Uh, but we were talking about this and I said, well, uh, my illustration is, I say, nobody wants somebody say I was a doctor who was diverse and I thought I was by equally good with right and left hands. And so I would randomize weeks to be left-handed or right-handed. Uh, would you think the patient would be pleased if I said, uh, this week is a left-handed week. I have to keep my left hand in, in, in good shape. Do you mind? Of course, everybody minds. Uh, when it comes to medicine, you don't care about diversity. You want to know who's the best. Doctors have their own set of physicians they'll go to, right? And this, the, their own set of surgeons. In every city I've ever been to, I ask the question, if I ask who's the best internist and who's the best general surgeon, will I get a random scattering of names? No, no, it's not randomly distributed. Some are in a different order to others. I mean, the guy who did the first heart transplant, the guy who did the difficult surgery was the black assistant that he trained, but he had a superb pair of hands. He's recognized now, but he wasn't for a long while in South Africa. Um, and the mission hospital we knew when we left, the Africans who'd assisted, no training, have managed to keep going the things that are really needed, which is to do cesarean sections every now and again and to repair uh, ruptured guts. And they're managing to do it on minimal equipment. I mean, you really do need skill, don't you? Anybody who walks into an OR can see the difference between surgeons. I once had the the privilege of watching Joe Pennybacker, who was a Texan who came to Oxford during the war with the Americans and stayed because he liked Oxford. But Joe was an immaculate surgeon. There was no blood loss. I mean, he, I've never seen anything like it. And I, I met a few along the way when I was doing my surgical rotation. One of the senior registrars, he was the kind of guy who knew where the tissue planes were. And, Everything fell out like a perfect dissection. Uh, one of his bosses was smart enough to say, oh dear, I've got to go to the bog uh, when the surgery was going to be very difficult in the next bit and Jim would do it while he was away and then it would carry on again. Uh, and it's the same in medicine too. We're not all made the same way, are we? And the best physician I ever worked for, a uh, wonderful, wonderful secular Jew, uh, uh, but Everybody who worked for him loved him. He was such a nice man and, and so brilliant with patients. I was the, something, something above a senior uh, resident here because the training program goes on for 10 years in the British system. And a patient had come in and I knew I had not got the story complete. She wasn't going to tell me that Harold comes in and sits on the bed and in 10 minutes the whole story just comes out. He had that kind of empathy and he was also brilliant. Uh, it's not equally distributed. 
equality of outcome, equity, is nonsense. Now think about it, if it actually happened, the world would die, wouldn't it? Because if everybody was exactly the same, there would be no stimulus to do anything. It would, we'd just be totally motivateless, a state of total lack of motivatedness. Uh, it's nonsense, and you know perfectly well, things are not distributed equally. A Down, Down, Syndrome, Down Syndrome child is one of the most important gifts that we get given, in my view. But you can't say they've been equally blessed physically, can you, or mentally? But they are certainly an example of a little, little child shall lead them, right? Psalm 8. Uh, they say things that nobody else could say. And in comes the arrow under the radar and hits the target time and time again. I mean, some disabilities I couldn't live with. You know, uh, these are the things I want to learn about in heaven. I mean, things like the Leshnayan syndrome, I, I couldn't handle having a child with that. But there's, there are people who can. Uh, that's the way it is. We've got, we have a lot in medicine that we can talk about. And in general, we have been so concerned about not sharing that you need to do it in ways that the public can understand without giving away anything that would identify the patient unless they don't mind, as in the case of Stephen that I used. I mean, his mom pushed me into it all. And I must go and find her and talk to her again. But we, we have things to say that matter. And when you say them and you tell your own story, it, it works. Uh, when, particularly in aggressive race things at the moment, I mean, racism is such a silly idea. I mean, it's a tiny... Uh, phenomenon uh, in the world as a whole. It will always be around and there is always loyalty. We're all tribal at root until God gets to work and puts us into his family. Uh, and when you talk about the examples, you, you, I was called pork all the while in Jamaica by the kids in the streets, white pork. Uh, you know, uh, it was understandable, it didn't bother me. Uh, and of course people like Tom Sowell and John McWhorter and all these really good black scholars are doing the job. So hopefully the, the black community at large will realize that victimhood is not a good idea. To turn somebody into a victim is not to help them. It's to make them miserable for life. And that's what it's doing. And that's what these scholars are pointing out. So it, the best solution is to get into a Christian community and grow. It so happens, I can, it's easy for me, the three, best, three of the best students I've ever had are black. One of them is probably the best physician in the University of Cape Town now. Uh, I will never forget the first time I met him. He was in residency and I was speaking at a conference of students in uh, South Africa and he came up to me uh, afterwards and he quoted a page of Shakespeare straight off. And I said, that's impressive. And we talked and I found uh, he, his father was a pastor way up in the border of Zimbabwe and uh, it was a good story, but they didn't have access to things they needed. So I gave him a, a subscription to First Things, which he and his dad have devoured since. He can now have any job he wants in South Africa. God has placed him there. Uh, absolutely brilliant man. He drove all the way from South Africa to Malawi just to see my daughter. 
when she needed medical help at her uh, orphanage. Pray for him, Rudzani. He's in uh, an incredibly difficult position because South Africa at the moment is having woke problems of the huge order. There are angry women, I'm sorry to say, I have a video of one of them, ranting on about the necessity to decolonialize science. Can you imagine that? What did it look like? It's the, the witch doctor, they say, can do the science. Any of you who've dealt with them will know that that's not a good idea. Uh, no, Murray does a, uh, the best account of the war on the West and how to deal with it. Cultures come and go. That's the starting point. And they all have the same sequence. The person who wrote about it most is not a popular academic now, a man called Toynbee. But the last thing he wrote was uh, a philosopher looks at religion um, and culture. He was interested in why cultures have a, an up and a down. Only the Jews bounce. <laughs> so if we're over the top, we're going to go on down historically. And he says that it's always the same way. The first thing that goes in every culture that's about to go onto the skids is objective morality. When you wake up in the morning and good and evil are being uh, got rid of in various ways, you're in trouble. And when laws start to be made that are in that way and you wake up in the morning, that's disastrous. And that leads to the next thing, which is you start to disrespect the law. There are lots of laws we disrespect now, aren't there? But we need to be thinking a lot about the rule of law is essential. Uh, got to be sure that that doesn't turn into total cynicism. Then when you start behaving in that way, you start to hate yourself. And because you hate yourself, you turn to drugs and alcohol. And then two forms of, uh, what's the word? Uh, you get sexual promiscuity and you get intellectual promiscuity, where all, uh, all thinking is sort of a being the same quality and all sex is sort of being the same quality. It's not. And then it's over. How far are we down that list? They're all two of us already, aren't they? So uh, the Lord is merciful, but as Jay Budzeszewski put in one of his recent uh, things in First Things, it's time to pray. It's really time to pray about the state of the nation. And when you start praying, it's going to end up with you having some duties to educate. And that's the point of this particular talk. Uh, yes, the cultural history is important, but when you explain it in terms of recent intellectual activity, without putting it in the big, question, the big picture, you don't win the argument. Uh, Everybody must know that Foucault, who was a brilliant man and a paedophile, uh, nevertheless knew that what he was doing was nonsense. They just wanted to destroy the culture. They were destructive. The hermeneutic of suspicion, weren't, which they want every student to have, will not make a culture. The way we understand the culture as is rooted in forgiveness, isn't it? Black Lives Matter, there's no forgiveness. There's no way in which the white man can recover. And of course, they know no history. The fact that 
in the world at the moment, blacks are enslaving other blacks more than the whites have ever done, that has no relevance. Well, that's a brain that has died, isn't it, in any sense of just uh, accounting. So one of the things you've got to do is start looking at your own culture and asking the question, what are the good things in it? And do I actually work at understanding them and being able to talk about them? When I realized that most kids in university today have not read a decent book, and that's been going on for some time. I remember going down to lunch with my good friend, the philosopher, one week on the, the bus that connected the health science to the rest of the university, and I sat behind two girls. And one said to the other, have you been in the library this year? No, I've managed to do without it. What do you make of that? It's all online and it's not the same. Stanford has sold its library. It's all digitized. But at least start a quotation book. When you, whether it's a verse from the Bible or a book or whatever, when you hear something said well, write it down, write it down by hand, don't put it on your phone, because when you write, you write words. When you put things on the phone, you put letters in. It's not the same. When you're reading, not all words are equal. Uh, it's a commonplace for me when I'm in the States preaching, I always ask the pastor, have your own lessons, but I want to read the lesson I'm going to use myself. And it's commonplace for somebody, usually a woman, to say afterwards something like, I understood the passage you preached on today better than I ever done before, before you said anything about it, just when you read it. And that is true. Uh, when you hear a really great actor read a poem, it's a different experience, isn't it? We spend hours preparing for the music in church. How long does the reader of the lesson spend preparing the reading of the lesson? I started reading in church at 12, but my mother made sure that I knew how to read the passage. Where to put the emphasis? I mean, we all wave our hands in, term, in, in time with music. That's not conducting. Great conductors are ahead of the music. They're listening to what's going on at the moment. They also know what they want next. So, you know, if Klempra is conducting a Beethoven symphony, I know within about three bars that Klempra is conducting. He has his signature, so to speak, on it. Uh, and we're losing all that, aren't we? Um, I'm glad that at least one of my children became a really good musician because uh, there's a really important things happen to their mind at that stage. Get your children to write, give them a quotation book. I haven't got mine with me, but several people asked me, I forgot to bring it. But a pocketbook, usually about that thick. Uh, when they get to 12, 13, and they start asking good questions, uh, the best present I ever gave, I gave it to all my children at the appropriate age, I would get such a book, nicely bound, um, plain paper, and I would fill the first 20 pages with quotations that I loved and I thought they would. And they all got the habit. Um, my son, who's now a professor of stochastic analysis, uh, like his father, he's not very well organized in some ways and he got to the age of going to university and I never asked my, my children about Marx because I didn't trust the teachers, so why would I ask them about Marx? I asked them what they'd learned every day and said, well, that's not true. Let's look it up and see. 
I had to get rid of the uh, science teacher from the school. Uh, uh, and I did. They had to put her in the library because I could prove she was incompetent. But the moment my children left the school, she started teaching science again. It's ridiculous. But anyway, uh, I asked Jonathan, where have you applied to university? He said, I haven't. I said, it's a bit late, you know. Uh, which subjects do you enjoy? He said, pretty well everything. I said, well, the best course for you would actually be McMaster's Combined Arts and Science course, but it's a bit competitive. Do you have what might be called obscene marks? He said, yes, and he did. So I pulled strings and he got, he got in. Um, that was the year Sally stayed on to run refugee camps in Africa. So six weeks after he started school, uh, university, I was in the area and I said, Jonathan, I'll take you and your friends out to, to a meal. Make it a, eat as much as you can place. I wanted a buffet so that I could sit with all his friends and find out what was actually going on. So a little while in, uh, I was talking to one of them and asked him how Jonathan was doing. He said, oh, he's fine. He doesn't go to statistics classes, though. I said, why? He says, oh, the, he says, the guy's useless. Uh, so we go and come home with the questions, and he shows us how to answer them. <laughs> I didn't know I'd got a mathematician on my hands, uh, and he wasn't willing to admit that he was one. <laughs> what he loved most was the philosophy, which was taught by a, a Jewish woman, uh, who was a wonderful woman. And uh, he took her on, of course, and she loved that. At the end of the year, she wrote him a little note saying, I'm going to miss your essays next year, Jonathan. You always have bigger questions on your mind than I do. So I knew I've got a philosopher on my hands. Uh, he gets to the end of university and I say, where are you going for the next bit? He said, I haven't done anything. I did the LSAT, but uh, I don't want to do law. He came out with some obscene marks on LSAT as well. And nobody guesses, he's very, very dismissive and quiet until you say something silly and then you'll get a very sharp reminder. But fortunately, the, the university had put him in for a, uh, a scholarship. So every, he got a free ride for his master's at any math department in, in Canada. And God looked after that too. The way he does it when you trust him is absolutely amazing. He had been on the bridge in Goma when the refugees were running into Zaire from Rwanda with his mother. And do-gooding Americans mainly uh, who were there before the UN, which is, takes time to get organized. The first two or three weeks were all Christians basically looking after people. But they didn't know what they were doing. And Jonathan was, sitting, was standing on the bridge and then listening to them. Of course, he was 17 at that time coming up to 18. They wouldn't listen to him, but he knew there was a form of mathematics which would help them to do that uh, and make them much more efficient. They had too many body bags and not enough other things, you know, and that kind of nonsense. And he could have, he was a statistician by mind. How accurate do you need this number to be? And he could bring it down to whatever it needed to be. So he knew that mathematics existed. So some three years later, he went looking for somebody who was doing that kind of mathematics and he found them in UBC. When he got there and he walked into the guy's office, he was wearing an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship sweatshirt. The guy looked at his sweatshirt, pointed to his notice board, and there was the IVCF program. He was a Christian. I knew his father, who was a physician. Uh, so he had a mentor. But this man was also a saint. A few weeks into 
the master's program, he called Jonathan into his office and said, Jonathan, you're too good for me. I'm using you rather than you using me. I'm going to move you to an American in the business school because he's better. I have never met a professor who gave a fully funded student away to somebody else. But this guy did. And this guy took him on and directed him. Eventually took him to Stanford. Uh, he filled in the forms for him because Jonathan was still not sure he was meant to be a mathematician. Uh, so the boss filled in the form for MIT and Stanford and both sent him a ticket. And both offered him a place. Uh, Stanford, uh, the guy, he went there, and he only met the head of the department. And they talked and played equations for a little while. And he said, I'll guarantee you a fully funded three-year PhD. And then he said, you don't look too happy. He said, well, I'm in the middle of doing a placement in the church uh, for a year to find out how churches run. And he said, you want Stanford to hold a place for you so that you can finish something in a church? Charles uh, said, that would be nice. He said, I don't believe I'm doing it, but I will do it. A year into Stanford, he called me and said, Dad, are you sitting down? And I said, yes, why? He said, I'm leaving Stanford. I said, why? He said, they just want to use the gifts God has given me to make rich men richer. I want to make the world better for poor people. And I think the mathematics I've learned can do that. I'm going back to my mentor in UBC, who'd sent him to Stanford in the first place. Not a Christian, but he was going to have a little bit of a comeuppance. Uh, but he said to me, you don't sound angry or upset. I said, well, Jonathan, I never told you, but it would be a bit hypocritical if I did, because I did the same to Harvard for exactly the same reason uh, 20 odd years ago when we came to Canada, when we came to Canada. Uh, so it must be in our genes somewhere. But he got back and he told the boss that he wanted to apply stochastic analysis to the management of medical activities. And the guy looked and he said, somebody's on your side. Because last week, the Vancouver General called me and said, is there any way you can make us more efficient in the use of MRIs and CAT scans? Because you in the States can't understand that question because you're overcapitalized. You spend too much money on equipment. In any state-funded system, you rapidly become undercapitalized, and people wait a long while for the blockages in the system. So he had total access to Vancouver General's data. And that was his thesis. His, he can get a 30% more work out of an MRI machine than the radiologists do by looking at all the factors that lead in to who wants it, when and how, and what the limitations are. Uh, that's billions of dollars in healthcare costs if you take it worldwide. Anyway, his mother said, I'm going to your defense. And I said, I couldn't go. I said, Sally, you won't understand a word of it. It's mathematical. She said, I'm still going. She came back cock-a-hoop. She said, the first guy who examined him, I said, that would be the external. Well, the first thing he said was, this, this thesis in stochastic analysis reads like a novel. Uh, she said he made everybody in that room understand what he was doing. Uh, he'd got the family gift. Uh, you can't stop us. Once we get going, 
this sort of thing happens, you know. Uh, Jana's the same, my mother was the same. The passion gets you. And if it can, if it can grow into your family, everybody's better off. We're supposed to be passionate people. Uh, but it's a passion driven because it is reasonable. C.T. Studs, if Jesus Christ died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And when you read widely, you realize you can't outgive God, so why not give it a whirl? Um, we've certainly learned that God doesn't ask the impossible. It would be impossible if he told you what it was going to do beforehand. And the, the last story, and I must stop, uh, is about Sally and Africa. Uh, in 1994, when the war blew up, uh, we were there. It started really, it had been going for some time. Uh, the, the proper history is not yet out in the, the Western world. But um, the, the Tutsi had taken a, a significant chunk of uh, Rwanda away from the Hutu on the Uganda side because they'd helped Museveni for years with his uh, capture of Uganda. But just before it really blew up, uh, we were doing a rather long drive and we had a breakdown so we were on the road after midnight which is a very dangerous thing to do in a, a country without any law and a Kalashnikov can be bought for 100 bucks or less and we were stopped by a drunken soldier on that road two boys had been killed the week before murdered because they wouldn't give the goat to the, the soldier and he killed them and took the goat nothing happened to him uh, he made a mistake. He got us out of the vehicle instead of shooting us, which would have been the right thing to do from his point of view. Uh, my wife, my son, myself, uh, uh, Abdallah, our driver, and a couple of other Africans. And after a minute or two, I said to Jonathan, are you afraid? And he said, no, I'm not. Isn't that strange? I said, neither is your mother and neither am I. And he knows that. It's really worrying him. Because they have a concept of spirit. And they recognize, both in Sally and in me, that it's strong. Uh, and then out of nowhere, at one o'clock in the morning, a sober soldier of a higher rank appeared and we were free. And we said, what was that all about? We had no idea that for two years we were going to be out of contact most of the time because there was no email and no contact. And once the Immediately after that, the war blew up. Sally went up to see what was going on before anybody else arrived. She was there in those first few weeks when it was total chaos. Loved organizing chaos. She was made for that. Uh, and I knew she wasn't coming back because Jonathan was going to university in September. There was nobody at home that mattered, i.e. me. Uh, <laughs> and so I did what any male would do. I worked out what spaces I would use, closed everything else down, cleared every surface. Uh, the house could be cleaned in 20 minutes, and uh, I got on with life. Uh, but I was not anxious about her, and she was not anxious about me, which was astonishing. He can keep your heart in perfect peace. He did. On one occasion, she called me, and I said, where are you? She told me, I said, but you were the other side of the war when I last heard about it. She said, oh, it's quiet, I drove through. That, that Christians can do those things. He made her that way, so he, he has the responsibility of looking after her, or not. But I think that 
the, the problem with our young people is the faith doesn't excite them, does it? As Dorothy Sayers is saying, because it's been dumbed down. It's been made nice. Jesus is not nice. One of our favorite sayings, of course, is from the Narnia stories. He's not tame, but he is good. Mrs. Beaver, when uh, Lucy asks, is he a tame lion? No, he's not tame, but he is good. And you can trust him. Uh, which doesn't mean terrible things won't happen. Like my saint in my life who lost three children to CF. But after it was all over, she said, if the Lord had told me what he wanted me to do, I, I would have said, I can't do that. But it's all right. And she runs the CF chapter. God can do that. But they don't see that in church. Do it doesn't look like that in our world, looking from the outside in. We don't look different, do we? Not sufficiently. So if you're brave, ask God, how can I look different for you in your prayers? And he'll show you, and it may well hurt, but it will be good. Sleep well. The Lord be with you. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you guys are enjoying this, please subscribe, share it with a friend. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe there as well. If you guys have questions, feel free to ask that by going to the link in the description down below or going to www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys and we'll see you next week.